morning. We, uh, uh, we have a, a, a special uh, guest uh, speaker this morning, but I also want to acknowledge a, a special guest we have in the back, our friend uh, Delegate Dan Morheim, uh, who was our, our uh, neighbor when we were back in Pikesville uh, at Stone Chapel. And uh, the, the sense of peace and lightness that you see about him has to do with the fact that he's not running for re-election. So, Dan, glad you could, uh, you could be with us this morning. Um, we are honored uh, to have with us this morning uh, Mark Galley. Mark is the editor-in-chief of Christianity Today. Mary and I got to know him and his wife Barbara when we visited the Holy Land together two and a half years ago, and uh, they say what happens in Jerusalem stays in Jerusalem. Uh, let's just say it's a good thing that he's still willing to come and spend time with us. So please give a warm welcome to Mark Galley. Good to be, it's good to be here in a healthy church, and even though I've only been here a few moments, I can tell it's a healthy church when someone starts crying when they have to leave it. That's a good sign. Uh, Jason has asked me to address, address a, a theme uh, that has been in the news quite a bit since the summer of 2016 and the presidential election. Uh, the word evangelical has come up a lot in our political conversation in our country. And unfortunately, <clears throat> it's come up in uh, secular newspapers who, as their job dictates, think about anything and everything through the eyes of politics. So what we're getting is a steady diet in the last couple years of when the word evangelical comes up, what it means politically. And so there's a lot of uh, increasing confusion about what that word is, what it means, whether people should or should not identify themselves with it. And I've been thinking a lot about that because I'm, a, I'm the editor of a magazine called Christianity Today, one of whose slugs is an, a magazine of evangelical conviction. So does that mean we're Republicans? Or does that mean we're anti-Republicans? Does it mean we stand for certain political moves and against others? What does it mean exactly? And in exploring this issue, so I'm going to be talking about some of what that means this morning, the attempt is not to get people to become evangelical or to proudly wear that label on their, their jackets or their vests or their hats. We can have hats that say, I'm an evangelical and proud of it. That's really not the point. But it, the, uh, what I'm anxious about as an editor is the use of words in our culture and in our language in the church and the integrity of what those words. And the one thing we have to recapture is that that word is actually a really good and powerful word and speaks to a phenomenon and a tradition that we should not lightly let go of. So that's, the, that's, what I, that's what's driving this, uh, this talk. Now, I'm a writer, first and foremost, and a speaker, second. So we live in an informal age, and most, most people appreciate it when people speak just as if they're speaking off the cuff. Well, I don't do that. I speak from a manuscript <laughs> where I write everything down to say exactly what I mean to say and nothing more, nothing less. So forgive me if you find that uh, unusual practice. <clears throat> For our text uh, this morning, I could use many texts from the New Testament, <clears throat> but the one I chose is this from Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord 
to the glory of God the Father. Some years ago, I was speaking with Francis Quinn, who was then Roman Catholic Bishop of Sacramento, and we were talking about evangelicals who had been converting to Catholicism. I was a Presbyterian minister at the time, serving a small church in Sacramento, and I can't remember the occasion of our conversation, but I do remember one of his remarks. He said that when evangelicals move into Catholicism, quote, I hope they bring Jesus with them. We Catholics need more Jesus. Now, Catholics hardly ignore Jesus. I mean, he hangs crucified in front of most of their churches, and they believe it is his very body and very blood that they take when they have communion at every Mass. But as the good bishop noted, Jesus isn't necessarily at the center of their daily piety. For many Catholics, that place would be occupied by the Virgin Mary or perhaps one or more of the saints. Other Catholics are enamored with the magisterium or the church's tradition. But it would be hard to argue that the Catholic faith is Jesus-y. That's a term that was coined by writer Anne Lamott soon after her conversion. In a period of dark despondency, one night she lay in bed when she, <clears throat> she wrote, writes, I became aware of someone with me, hunkered down in the corner. The feeling was so strong that I actually turned on, that, on the light for a moment to make sure no one was there. And, of course, there wasn't. But after a while, in the dark again, I knew beyond any doubt that it was Jesus. For the next few days, she says, I had the feeling that a little cat was following me, wanting me to reach down and pick it up, wanting me to open the door and let it in. A week later, she found herself in church, crying uncontrollably during the hymns. Before she left, uh, she left before the benediction and raced home. And again, she felt like a little cat was running at her heels. She writes, I opened the door to my house and I stood there a minute. And then I hung my head and said, I quit. I took a long, deep breath and said out loud, all right. You can come in. Jesus has been at the center of her faith ever since, so much so that she said in an interview in Christianity Today that her friends, quote, roll their eyes at me because I'm really Jesus-y. There's just no way, no way around it. As she stood before a mostly evangelical audience at Calvin College in the year 2000, she exclaimed, we will have the jesus time ever. Now, Lamott, by her own admission, is anything but an evangelical. But Jesus-y is not a bad way to sum up what is distinctive about the lived faith of evangelical Christians in both their conversations and in their spirituality. I mean, in both their conversions and spirituality. It harkens to the 1960 and all the, the conversions of all those hippies who recounted in various sundry ways their dramatic encounters with Jesus, and they were rightly called Jesus' people. That is why at the heart of evangelical spirituality lies the person of Jesus Christ. Thus, the classic evangelical phrases that sum up what, what one does to become a Christian, one accepts Jesus as your Lord and Savior or invites Jesus into your heart so one can have a personal relationship with Jesus. And thus, the classic stories that describe the born-again experience of evangelical saints, none more evangelical than that of John Wesley, the founder of Methodism. 
One evening, he reluctantly attended a meeting in Aldersgate, and someone read from Luther's epistle to the uh, to, uh, the introdu- preface, Luther's preface to the introduction, a uh, preface to the epistle of the Romans, and he notes at about 8:45. That's one the thing that's really characteristic of uh, many evangelical conversions. There is this timestamp that people remember when something happened, very particular time. It doesn't happen for many evangelicals, but it's not surprising to hear about a particular day and time. And he's got it down to 8:45. He doesn't say about eight. Well, he does say about eight forty-five. He later called while he while this man was reading or preacher was was describing the was reading Luther's epistle and was describing the change that which God works in the heart through faith in Christ. I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for my salvation, and an assurance was given me that He had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Historian Albert Robito, in describing the key role conversion played in African-American religion, quotes Baptist preacher George Lyle, whose conversion occurred while he was a slave in Virginia. Lyle writes later, I was convinced that I was not in the way to heaven, but in the way to hell. The state I labored under for the space of five or six months, I was, uh, I was brought to perceive that my life hung by a slender thread. And I found no way, no way wherein I could escape the damnation of hell only through the merits of my dying Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, to be fair, one cannot be a Christian without Jesus Christ playing a central role. So in this respect, Jesus belongs to every Christian and Christian tradition. But one distinctive of evangelical Christianity is that it is perhaps more Jesus-y than most. Uh, most Christians, yes, try to imbibe the full counsel of God, uh, and often, but often try to understand God and have a particular encounter with God. Uh, that's uh, the emphasis is somewhat different. So to contrast, but two, Pentecostals are known for having a powerful experience of the Holy Spirit, and mystics enjoy sublime spiritual moments with the Absolute, and evangelicals are characterized by their Jesus-centered piety. The first question and answer to the Heidelberg Catechism, a document to instruct people in the faith from the 1500s, remains not a bad summary of the existential priorities and biblical theology that drives much of evangelical spirituality. It was actually written for a theologically reformed community, but I'm quoting this part because it strikes me as so characteristic of evangelical emphases. The question in the catechism that, I'm, that uh, is the most interesting to me, and it's the very first one, actually. What is your only comfort in life and in death? Answer, that I am not my own, but belong in body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live with him. Now, a great amount of theology is packed in that paragraph, but for the purposes of this sermon, two themes are worth noting. The first is that evangelicals admit 
that they need comfort. As the dictionary defines the word, a feeling of relief or encouragement. Evangelicals are particularly troubled by a number of human predicaments. Working backward from the relief Christ brings, the catechism indirectly points out what I believe evangelicals wrestle with most deeply. The catechism speaks about the forgiveness of sin, uses the phrase, uh, talks about the forgiveness of sin, but that speaks to the anxiety about guilt and shame. It talks about being set free, which speaks to spiritual slavery. It it has a phrase, he watches over me, which speaks to insecurity and anxiety. The phrase, assures me of eternal life, addresses our fear of death and annihilation. Ready to live for him now speaks about the lack of meaning and purpose we often feel in our lives. Now, it certainly can be argued that many human beings coming from many different traditions wrestle with these very things. But I'd argue that there's something about the evangelical personality. Evangelicals are those among us who seem especially concerned about these sorts of things, these sort of what I'd call existential anxieties. The key thing to note is that for evangelicals, Jesus Christ is their only comfort and the only one who has dealt adequately with these human predicaments. But the Heidelberg Catechism is not satisfied merely with saying what Jesus Christ did for us long ago and what he does from us from far above. It describes the believer's ongoing relationship with Christ. He is our comfort not merely because of what he's done for us, but that we, quote, belong body and soul in life and death to Jesus Christ. The idea of belonging to Christ is repeated in the in the answer and given definitive emphasis in the opening phrase, I am not my own. And that's why evangelicals are especially moved by the way the Apostle Paul talks about this. He says in Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In Philippians, he says, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, he says, that I may gain Christ. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he says in 2 Corinthians, a new creation has come. These sayings go hand in hand with Paul's repeated affirmation that we are in Christ, a phrase he uses over 200 times in his letters. Evangelical Christians do not merely believe truths about Christ. We do not merely believe that God forgives us because of Christ's death and resurrection. The distinctive thing is this. We are in Christ, and Christ is in us. It is a lived, dynamic, and personal experience. A popular contemporary Christian hymn celebrated in many evangelical churches, I I heard we're singing it at the end of this service, is called Christ Alone, whose last verse is, No guilt in life, no fear in death, this is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power in hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. This is not a song just about Christ's historic work on the cross, but an inward reality. This prompts a response in us, to, uh, which is expressed in the classic hymn, Take My Life and Let It Be, whose last verse is, Take my will and make it thine. It shall no longer be mine, 
Take my heart, it is thine own, it shall be your royal throne. Take my love, my Lord, I pour at thy feet its treasure store. Take myself, and I will ever be only all for thee. This devotion to Jesus crosses cultural and racial lines, of course. Some of the most well-known African-American hymns and gospel songs include Jesus is my rock, and Jesus, Jesus, oh, what a wonderful child. And from across the world, we have Yesu, Yesu, fill us with our love, with your love from Ghana, oh, Christ the great foundation from China, Christ is living from Argentina, and on it goes. Now, one might suspect such writers of such hymns uh, that they're maybe a bit neurotic about Jesus. Well, maybe so. As the Catholic writer Brendan Manning put it in his book, Ragamuffin Gospel, those who have the disease called Jesus will never be cured. For better or worse, evangelicals are victims of this disease, which actually they happen to think is the cure. As the quotes from Manning and Lamott suggest, they aren't the only Christians so afflicted, and evangelical theology in hymnody surely appeals to other dimensions of the faith. But as evangelical composers Bill and Gloria Gaither put it in one song, Jesus, 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 there's something about that name. We might say, evangelicals, there's something Jesus-y about that movement. Now, this does not mean that all evangelicals are Jesus-y in a more emotional or evocative sense. For some, Jesus-y means to be firmly Christocentric or Christ-centered. And one reason so many evangelical scholars are attracted to the theologian Karl Barth is precisely because he grounds his theology so firmly in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Ironically, it's Karl Barth, in fact, who can give evangelicals some theological heft on this point. It's ironic because Barth had little sympathy for evangelicals when he was alive. Nonetheless, he remains a good apologist for Christ-centered thinking and theology. Barth's logic is not hard to follow. If Jesus Christ is in fact God incarnate, in whom the fullness of God dwells, as Paul put it in Colossians, then any and everything we know about God must begin and end in Jesus Christ. Bart takes a step too far in some people's minds when he, for example, argues that we can know nothing about God by looking at the created order, by looking at creation. But he does have a point. In nature, we see marvelous beauty, intricate, intricate design that just stuns us and overwhelms us and makes us stand back in awe. But we also see viciousness, the violent predatory habits of one species killing another species for their very survival. It's what some have called a theater, red and tooth and claw. So by looking at nature alone, one has to ask, how do we know which of those aspects of nature actually reveal the character of God? (coughs) Or take the path of mysticism, which many take to be a, a, a really important way to know something true and immediate about God, personally, immediately, transcendently. Some people claim to have a direct encounter with God like this, and it leads them to do sacrificial acts of service for humanity. But some say that God told them after this experience to practice free love. And others have this experience and they believe God has told them to conquer and subjugate another people. And other people have this experience and say, well, God told me just to leave society and have nothing to do with this dark and a dying world. 
So how can we tell which of these mystical encounters with the divine are encounters with the God of the Bible? Well, without Jesus Christ, we really wouldn't be able to decide, says Bart. And that's what evangelicals say as well. Now, to be sure, our Jewish friends understand God in ways that are strikingly similar to the way Christians understand God, and they do so without Jesus Christ. But as the book of Hebrew notes, Jesus Christ is nonetheless the final and complete revelation of God. Long ago, God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets, says the writer. And now in these final days, he has spoken to us through his son, which is why, despite all we share about the nature of God with our Jewish friends, there remain some remarkable differences, especially when we start talking about exactly what it means to be forgiven, what grace means, and especially when we Christians start talking about God as a trinity of love. So for evangelicals and Bardians, since God was in Christ, we look at the life and teaching of Jesus as the measure of every other so-called revelation of God. By looking at Christ, and only by looking at Christ, we can separate the true from the false, the incomplete from the complete that other revelations purport to give. We live in a time of tremendous confusion about many things. Uh, I talked about the confusion about words like evangelical, even, in, even Christian today. But I'd say most of all, our culture lives in great confusion about who God is and how he calls us to live and where one can find meaning and purpose in life. For evangelicals, the journey starts with one name and it ends with one name. This one gives them ballast in stormy times and direction when the way is unclear. And most of all, he gives grace in time of need and strength to love a lost and confused world so that men and women and boys and girls from every corner of the globe might come to know the one who calls himself the way, the truth, and the life. Amen. Amen. Let's bow in prayer. Lord, we have uh, been speaking about you as if you're not here, but we are reminded that you are here. And we speak about you now in the words of the Apostle Paul. We are reminded that God elevated you to the place of highest honor and gave you the name above all other names, that at your name every knee should bow, and in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that you are Lord to the glory of the Father. So as the hymn put it, Take our wills and make them yours. Take our hearts that you can be seated there in royal majesty. Take our love. We pour it out for you. Take our very selves so that every dimension of our lives will be dedicated to you. And we pray this in your name. Amen.